thank you so much. This morning, as we looked at the Word of God for the first of these messages, which will conclude tonight, we talked about the church member's responsibility in the local church. And this, of course, gives us uh, the opportunity tonight to end this series that we've entitled Life in the Body with a part two message that continues on with the idea of the responsibility of a local church member uh, to that church, to his home church, we might say. And this morning, if you were here with us and you were taking notes, I mentioned that there were five areas of responsibility that a local church member has, and we'll talk about five more tonight. But for the sake of review, let me give them to you as we talked about them this morning. First of all, we talked about a local church member who has a a zealous desire to know God and His Word through study and prayer. That's the first and foremost responsibility of every individual church member, and that is to have a zealous desire for God, for His Word, through ardent study and fervent prayer. And uh, we spent quite a bit of time on that first point because we said it was so very, very important. And then secondly, we also talked about the zealous desire of a local church member to proclaim the gospel to others. How important that is, even Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, as we looked about uh, as we looked at it this morning, he said that the gospel is of first importance. It is first and foremost in the believer's mind because that's why we're here. That's why God has given us more time on this earth so that we could proclaim the gospel to others. And we looked at a number of passages, including 1 Corinthians 15, uh, for that principle. And then thirdly, we talked about the zealous desire to minister to the needs of the body. That is also a local church member responsibility. And if every member has a ministry in the local church, surely one of the important areas is looking around so that you might be able to meet the needs of those in the body of Christ in this local expression. So we talked first about knowing God and His Word through study and prayer. We talked about the zealous desire of proclaiming the gospel to others and meeting the needs of the body. And then fourthly, We also talked about a church member who has the zealous desire to financially contribute to the work of the Lord. And we looked at a number of passages in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians and Philippians that gives us not simply the obligation to give to the work of the Lord in the local church, but the privilege of doing so. And that is a major privilege. It's It's a joy of our hearts to be able not to be stingy, but to be a cheerful giver. We want to give to the work of the Lord in terms of the preacher's salary. We want to give to the church uh, as an expression of our desire to help and support the work of missions. We want to give to the Lord for the opportunity to meet the needs of those who might be in great need financially themselves. And we have many other ways in which we can contribute to the financial needs of the body of a local church. And then fifthly, as we concluded this morning, we talked about the zealous desire to honor and submit to spiritual leaders. To honor and submit to spiritual leaders. We talked about a number of passages again where the Apostle Paul, for instance, says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Uh, We talked about Paul saying in Philippians 4 that the things you have seen and heard 
in me, you ought to follow those things. And it's not something that runs cross-grain in the church necessarily as much as it runs cross-grain in our culture where you, if you taught that you needed to honor and submit someone over you, maybe someone might think of that in a work or business context, but even there they would chafe at the honor part even if they had to be obligated uh, to fill out the submit part. But in the local church, we show how much we love God when we honor and submit to those in spiritual authority over us. We talked about that as, uh, for instance, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, where we ought to honor and esteem those who are over us in the Lord, and we ought to esteem them very highly for their work's sake. Now I know, as I said, the uh, the world knows very, very little about that, whether it's a submission of a wife to her husband or submission of church members uh, to their elders. Very little do they understand that. And that's why, counterculturally, when we do it in the church, uh, we can be a very definite witness, even if they don't see it initially. Remember, in the first century, there were often, in the context of the local church, many, many slaves within a congregation. And if you thought about that for any length of time, you would also recognize that probably at times in the first century, you might have a slave who had attained such a level of visibility and leadership in the local church that he might himself have been affirmed as an elder or a deacon, and you might have his master also being in that same local fellowship submitting to him as a leader over him. And it would be different, of course, in the work environment, uh, but very, very different in the local church. So you might very well have a situation like that. So... Those five principles are very, very important for local church members to know and to pursue and follow through on as their responsibility in this church locale. Now, I want to give you five more tonight. Number six, number six, a responsibility of the local church member also includes the zealous desire to be consistent and faithful in the worship and ministry of the local church. I'll state that again. A local church ministry responsibility of every individual member of that body is the zealous desire to be consistent and faithful in the worship and ministry of the local church. And I'm specifically thinking there, at least initially, of the idea of your consistency in attendance, your consistency in involvement, your consistency in commitment. And of course you might assume that I would almost immediately go to Hebrews chapter 10 and that indeed is where I'm going. Hebrews chapter 10. You probably have seen this. You've heard undoubtedly uh, teaching on this particular topic and it is very, very important for us as we start this local church only having been four months in and now having established uh, 52 members as of last Sunday we want to emphasize the zealous desire of everyone being consistent and faithful in the worship and ministry of their local church. Now, of course, we're not talking about uh, taking attendance and giving a gold star uh, to everyone who attends all the services. And we're not talking about a slavish attendance. We know that people are often traveling out of town on business trips, visiting family. Sometimes sickness does not allow Sometimes even those who are more feeble uh, find it more challenging, especially to come, for instance, 
on a Sunday evening, but by and large, we're simply talking about those who are in their hearts consistently and faithfully attending the worship services of our local church and the various ministries where they can be utilized. And this is very, very important. If you see in Hebrews chapter 10, you'll find that there are a series of let us statements. You see it in verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That is clearly, and in the context here, a a way of speaking about someone who has been converted to Christ. Someone who has drawn near to God with a true heart, with faith, in fact a full assurance of faith, with their hearts sprinkled clean, that is the washing of the water with the word, that's used several other times in Scripture to speak about someone being washed by the Word of God, sprinkled clean here, it says, from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. That is, of course, the water of the Word. And then another let us in verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. You would know that in this particular context, in this first century, there would have been those if they had named the name of Christ, especially those Jews who had left Judaism for the sake of following Christ, they would have been ostracized, so many of them persecuted, beaten down, even physically so, and it would have tempted them to draw back, not draw near, but to draw back and to renounce their confession of Christ. And that's why the writer says here, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, For he who promised is faithful. God will be faithful to you if you maintain your confession of Jesus Christ. And then the third let us in verse 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near, the day of Christ, the day of Christ's return, the day of judgment. And so, let us, verse 22, let us, verse 23, let us, verse 24, and in verse 24, we are considering in the midst of our faithful confession, holding fast to it, not drawing away from it, but drawing near to it, because our hearts have been sprinkled clean with water, we are hoping in Christ in the future day without wavering, because whatever God has promised, He is faithful to bring to pass. And because we're in this small fellowship and we're under intense persecution, we need to continue to stir one another up to love and good deeds, good works. Stir up, by the way, is the word incite. To incite someone to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. Maybe some within this context had already begun to draw back, to draw away from the fellowship because of the persecution. And the writer to Hebrews is saying, don't do that. Don't draw back. Don't draw away. What kind of contemporary application might we have of that? Someone who maybe while they aren't undergoing intense persecution they are still undergoing the temptation of compromise with the world. And in their compromise with the world, 
they may very well be drawing back from faithfulness and consistency in their local church because of all the allurements of the world. They're drawing back because there might be something else that is enticing them to be inconsistent and to be faithless in this regard. And so it has very, very keen application for us today. We should be encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is the zealous desire of someone who truly names the name of Christ and who desperately desires to be with God's people. They love to be with God's people. They love to sing the praises of God. They love to pray with the saints. They love to give of their time, their talent, and their treasure. And they love to be a part of what God is doing in a local body, not just for what they can receive from that body, but for what they also can give to that body by way of their gifts. They are the ones who are inciting to to stir up one another to love and good works, and so are those toward them. This is a very, very important passage. There's another passage in Psalm 95 that talks about worship. Psalm 95. It talks about the privilege of worship, the awe of worship, the joy of worship. And it says in verses 6 and 7, you've heard it, I'm sure, many times if you've been in the church for any number of years. Oh, come, Psalm 95, 6, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Oh, come, come and let us worship. Let us bow down. That's what we're doing tonight. That's what occupies us. That's what fans the flame of our love for Jesus Christ, to come in to God's very presence collectively, corporately as a body, and to be able to be incited to love and good deeds and worship and praise and giving and fellowship and receptivity to the Word to receive this Word implanted so that we could grow thereby unto salvation. And then just a couple of psalms later, Psalm 96, in fact, just the next psalm, verse 8, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come into His courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth. That's what we're doing. That's what happens when somebody is zealously desirous of consistently and faithfully worshiping and ministering in the context of the local church. That's what it's all about. In a New Testament context, you know it well. Ephesians chapter 5 where it speaks again of the opportunity to sing praises to God, something that we were doing just a moment ago. Ephesians chapter 5, you've probably read this many, many times. Verse 18, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, Ephesians 5.18, but be filled, or I like better, but be controlled with the Spirit or by the Spirit. Be being kept controlled by the Spirit, the Spirit of God. And when you are, what happens to you in your life? Verse 19. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. You know, when you are spirit-controlled, when you want to be in the Lord's presence, gathered with His people, when you want to sing hymns and psalms and spiritual songs, and when you want to sing and make melody in your hearts to the Lord, it just infuses you with the encouragement that you need, especially when you come to this place on Sunday at our first service and then the evening service. It arms you with the encouragement that you need to face the toughness of a Monday morning. Is that not so? You need that for your soul. And that's why we, from the very outset, wanted to have an evening service so that we could perfectly bookend the idea of coming together and worshiping corporately both in the morning slash afternoon and in the evening as well. It is what we do because we want to do it. We want to come and we want to be involved in singing these psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and making melody in our hearts to the Lord. And you know, when we do that with each other, we're, we're singing to the Lord, of course, and we're singing beside one another. But notice what it says. You are addressing one another. Yes, you're addressing God. Yes, you're singing praises to Him. But you're also addressing one another. You are encouraging one another by your singing, just by your very presence in song with them to the Lord. That's a great encouragement. I remember reading in a book many, many years ago when someone, a venerable saint, said, even the sight of a man of God is refreshing. It's so true because we get our feet so dirty as we walk in this wicked world. We need to return each and every Lord's Day so that we could wash the dirt and filth uh, off, off our spiritual shoes so that we can once again remind ourselves about the great truths of the faith. And do you realize that the corollary passage in Colossians 3 to this passage in Colossians 5 actually changes the idea of not simply being controlled by the Spirit, but in Colossians 3, it too gives the same idea of worshiping in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, but here it changes it to this, Colossians 3.16. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. So if you combine the two passages, it would be Ephesians 5.18, don't get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be controlled continually by or with or for the Spirit of God. And here, the Word of Christ is to dwell in you richly. So if you have the fullness of the Spirit of God guiding you so that as a result of such control, you are singing in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Here it says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Clear parallel there. And what both Paul is saying to the Ephesians and the Colossians is the twin truths. This is the head and tails of sanctification that at one place the Spirit of God is controlling your life so that you're singing in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And the other side of the coin is that you're letting the Word of Christ dwell in you so richly that you're singing in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Which means that God uses His Spirit to control you and God uses Christ's Word to control you so that you're dwelling richly and that you're singing these songs of praise to God. And whatever you do, he says in verse 17, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him, finishing almost exactly as He does 
there in Ephesians 5. And this is what church attendance, consistency, and faithfulness is all about in the worship and ministry of the local church. That's why we come, because we come for baptism, when we come for the Lord's Supper. I heard so many encouraging things. I read about them. I received texts about them, emails about them, word of mouth about them. And that was the 14 baptisms that we had a couple of Sunday nights ago. It was glorious, wasn't it? It was phenomenal to hear the word of Christ being declared in the waters of baptism. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we see and hear in a visual way the representation that Jesus Christ is alive and that he's coming again and that he is the one to whom we will continue to proclaim until he comes. That's one of the aspects of the Lord's Supper. So we could go on and on, but what we want to say is this, the zealous desire of all faithful Christians and faithful church members to this body is that you're consistent and faithful in the worship and ministry of the local church. Number seven. Number seven. A healthy church member has a zealous desire to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The healthy, vibrant, committed church member has a zealous desire to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. How important is this in a fractured society? How important is this concept of unity in the body when you go outside the walls of the confines of this fellowship and you find people fighting with each other all over the place? This is the haven. This is the haven of rest. This is the the citadel that allows us to fight for, maintain, pursue, plead with all of our brothers and sisters in Christ. You may be in a work environment. You may be in a home situation. You may be in a school context where at any one moment you could be stabbed in the back relationally by someone. You could be gossiped about. You could be talked down to. Uh, You could be criticized. But in here, you should expect no less than the preservation of the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It's that important. Look with me at Philippians chapter 1, and I'll show you this. Even just initially here from the book of Philippians in several places, preserving the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Chapter 1, verse 27. Paul says there, Only let your manner of life Be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. Now think with me about a couple of these phrases. Paul says, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. Remember in Ephesians 4 when it says, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Here it says, one spirit. United. United under the banner of Jesus Christ by the seal of the Holy Spirit. And then he says, with one mind. How is it possible to have so many people in a local church 
who are so very different from each other in almost every way, and yet Paul can say here, and we can expect of you, that we and you are to have one spirit, one mind, one accord. It is possible because it says here, striving. It takes a lot of work. It takes much effort. Striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. That's what binds us together. That's what unifies us. That's what gives us an adhesive around the truth. The gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ. You've seen it before. You may have gone halfway around the world, whether it was vacation or for some ministry purpose, or maybe you didn't know where you were going or quite how to get there, and when you arrived you didn't know who you were going to stay with, how you were going to bunk for the night, and if you were able to contact somebody who was a believer, likely they would have put you up. Likely they would have ministered to you. Far more often than not. Because the gospel binds us together. Look at chapter 2. Verse 1, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind. One mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. There it is again. And then if you look at chapter 4, verse 2, for all eternity, there's a list of a couple of people who apparently struggled with each other and for which Paul said, I need you to do what I've just written for you to do by being of the same mind and having the same spirit. And he says in chapter 4, verse 2, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. That implies in the most obvious sense that there was some level of disagreement. And some have actually said uh, if indeed these were two ladies who were sort of going at it with each other, one might have been named instead of Euodia, Euodius. And the other might have been noted not as Syntyche but as Syntyche. And it's true. They had some issue with one another. And it is also true that at times we might have issues with one another in the body. And yet, Paul says in verse 3, Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Help you, Odia. Help Syntyche. Help them rejoice in the Lord. Help them continue to work side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement. We need these ladies to work together. We don't need them to be fighting with one another. In Ephesians chapter 4, we're almost there, just one or two messages away. And in chapter 4, verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. He speaks to these Ephesians and he says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Speaking, quite literally, putting up with one another in love. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Why, Paul? Because verse 4, there is one body. We're indivisible. We're, we're connected. We're glued. We're adhered to one another. 
That's who we are. We're one body, one spirit. And if he was referring to Jew and Gentile, he would have said, as disparate as you may have been and as different as you may be still, one coming out of a Jewish environment, the other coming out of a Gentile one, you are nevertheless, according to chapter 2 and 3, one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Psalm 133. You, you fill it out for me. How blessed it is for brothers to dwell together in what? Unity. How blessed it is. How marvelous it is. How wonderful it is. And my friends, how destructive it is not to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Do you zealously desire to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace? It's critical. Absolutely critical. It's fundamental to Christian living. It's, it's endemic to Christian love. It's inimical, inimical to all that we're about because we say we follow Christ. And Christ said, the world will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Do you know what God thinks about strife, division in the body? Listen to Proverbs chapter 6. You know, that's one of those texts in Proverbs 6 with that little Hebraism that says in chapter 6, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to Him. That's mentioned several times like that in the Scripture. There are these many things, yea, these many things. And what He means by that is, I'm going to give you that which for emphasis is the following. Six things, no seven. So here are the seven things that are an abomination to God. Haughty eyes, Proverbs 6.17, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. I don't know if the last is the greatest or the culmination or the climax of it all could be. You might be saying, here are seven things in order of ascendancy, and it may very well be that the highest, the top, the apex of that list is that God hates, it's an abomination to Him, those who sow discord among brothers, those who sow strife. You say, well, what, what should you do? What, what's, what's the cure for strife? How can you work at preserving the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace? Well, Matthew 5, 23 and 24 says it very plainly. Jesus himself teaches that if you know that your brother has something against you, what does the Bible say? Go. Go and first, even before you come and bring your offering, and of course in that Old Testament, Old Covenant context, before the cross, it was the idea that someone was bringing their literal offering to the altar 
so that it could be either burned or accepted as a fragrant aroma into the nostrils of God. And Jesus said, look, if you know that someone has something against you, first you go and reconcile with your brother before you bring that offering and then come and bring your offering. What's the new covenant context? What's the application there? Well, if you know that someone has something against you, maybe it's something that you don't necessarily know exactly what it is, but you know that some kind of discord, some kind of strife has arisen between you and that person, then by all means go to that person. Do whatever you can before presumably even the next opportunity for worship. Seems to be the context there in Matthew 5. At least you're making the effort to do that. And if you throw in Romans 12, you're going to seek as much as it depends on you to be at peace with all men, especially unbelievers, but most certainly believers because they're brothers, right? That's why Jesus said in Mark 9:50, be at peace with one another. Be at peace with one another as much as you possibly can do. So, zealous desire to be content and faithful in the worship and ministry of the local church, zealous desire to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, and number eight, a, a zealous desire to refrain from gossip, slander, and strife. I know I've already mentioned strife, discord, but what's the vehicle that often brings the spreading of that strife? The tongue. The tongue. Certainly it does. Ephesians Chapter 4, verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Oh, if we could apply that one verse in the context of the greatest amount of our speech, we would be doing so much good in the ministry of this local church. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up. Of course, the contrast, not for tearing down. For building up as it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Not so that it may give grief to those who hear. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Thank you, Lord, for forgiving me of my, my mouth as an unregenerate person. And I want to so be transformative in that speech of mine that instead of tearing down others, I just want to build them up. Instead of speaking with corrupting talk, I want to speak with seasoned salt kind of talk. Instead of bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander and malice, I want kindness and tenderheartedness and forgiveness. This is, this is a zealous desire of someone who wants to be a faithful church member. This is, this is incredibly important. 1 Timothy 5.13 1 Timothy 5.13 when those young widows who have passions, according to verse 11, they've 
abandoned their former faith, if indeed that's the case with some, it's because they have learned to be idlers going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. Boy, even when you even when you hear the word gossip, it's one of those onomatopoeic words. It has even the hiss in it. Gossip. It's like the hiss of a serpent. And that's what gossip does. It it strikes someone unawares. It it strikes them at a place that assaults them with the poison of gossip. And a person who is zealously desiring to refrain from such talk is a person who says, I won't be a part of that. And did you know that in Romans chapter 1, when it gives that hideous list of those who are the unregenerate, in one of the ways that it characterizes them in verse 29, they are filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips and slanderers. That's not who we are. That's the world. That's the unregenerate. That's those who are seeking to bite and devour one another. James 4. What is the source of quarrels among you? Is it not this this envying? Is it not this corruption? Is it not this which tears at people? Is it your motives, your wrong motives? Is it your passions that are at war within you? You desire, you don't have, so you murder, you covet, you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You don't ask, uh, you don't have because you don't ask, and you ask when you do ask because you ask with wrong motives, spending it on your passions. And you say, where is the cesspool of all of that coming from? Well, what does it say in the earlier part of that chapter? So the tongue, while it's a small member, yet it boasts of great, great things. How great is a forest set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. This is serious stuff. Serious stuff. And what you do, if you're a faithful church member, is you are fighting, zealously fighting to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And you are zealously desiring to refrain from gossip and slander and strife. You know, I took you to some of those uh, statements in the Proverbs in chapter 6. Go back there. And I want to show you just in three chapters how many times the idea of the use of our words are mentioned in just three short chapters in chapters 16, 17, and 18. You might even take a pen and circle something or underline it regarding words or tongue or lips or speech throughout the book of Proverbs, but certainly here in chapters 16, 17, and 18. Look at verse 23, for instance. This is the positive side. The heart of the wise 
makes his speech judicious and adds persuasiveness to his lips. And then this, verse 24, gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. Oh, that's what we need. That's what we so need. What's its opposite? Verse 27, a worthless man plots evil and his speech is like a scorching fire. Remember what we said in James 3 about the tongue? It's this fire of a tongue that sets not only the mouth and the body and the context and the relationships and the church ablaze with that fire. Verse 28, a dishonest man spreads strife and a whisperer, a gossiper, separates close friends. I've seen it happen. Seen it happen. Chapter 17, verse 1. Better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with what? Strife. Strife. Discord. Verse 9. Whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. You've already dealt with something. It's under the blood. It's been covered. You've made it relationally right. And then you go right out of that experience with that person and you tell somebody else about it. That's undoubtedly why Matthew 18, 15 says that if you see your brother sin, go to him in private. No one else has to know about that. Look at verse 14. The beginning of strife is like letting out water. So quit before the quarrel breaks out. Can you see the visual image of that? Here's what strife does. It's like letting out water. How can you catch all of the drops? You can't. It's like feathers in a wind, to use another analogy. So quit before the quarrel breaks out. Look at verse 19. Whoever loves transgression loves strife. He who makes his door high seeks destruction. Verse 27, whoever restrains his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit, a controlled spirit, is a man of understanding. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he's deemed intelligent. And if he doesn't and opens his mouth, he removes all doubt about where he's coming from. This is, this is the Word of God, chapter 18, verse 8. The words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. They go down into the innermost parts of the body. Oh, I know I shouldn't listen to that, but it feels so good for my ears to know something that others don't know. Verse 13. If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. Verse 17. The one who states his case first seems right or just until another comes and examines him. Don't be so quick to assume you know what's going on and then spreading it to others or making a conclusion about it yourself. Look at verse 19. A brother offended is more unyielding than a strong city and quarreling is like the bars of a castle. It's amazing. Maybe the culmination verse is verse 21. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. You can 
powerfully overcome a person by the death of your words. And you can powerfully bring life and encouragement and edification to somebody with the life of your words. This is the zealous desire of a faithful church member not to gossip or slander or have strife with one another. Number nine. Number nine. The zealous desire to be humble and joyful. The zealous desire to be humble and joyful. You know that some have labeled the book of Philippians the epistle of joy. Certainly one of the themes of that book. And in chapter 1, verse 3, Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of our partnership in the gospel. I want this church to be known as a church of great joy. Great joy. Love. Compassion. Tenderness. Excitement. With Christians who have smiling faces. Not those who are dour in spirit. Not those, even if they are beset with discouraging things and trials and tests in life. Paul says, while imprisoned, I have this joy in my heart, even though I'm in these chains. He has great joy for the saints. He has great joy for these people. Look at what he says in verse 15. He says, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former, these who are doing it out of envy and rivalry, these who are proclaiming Christ, the former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me and my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. I know some people are preaching Christ this way and some people are preaching Christ that way but here's what I rejoice in, that Christ is preached. Throughout the rest of this epistle, look at chapter 3, verse 1, just to give you one other example. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Zealous desire for joy. This is one of the revived themes of our day, and I rejoice in this. John Piper and others have rekindled afresh and anew for many Christians the idea that we can have joy in the Christian life. Yes, we can and we should. And humility and humility. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, there at the end of that verse, 1 Peter chapter 5, he says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Boy, if we could just come to grips with that each and every day of our life. Lord, I want to be humble today. I want to I have grace today. And if grace comes to the humble, then I want to be humble because I want the grace. I don't want to be proud. I don't want to be resisted by you. 
That's why verse 6 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. And isn't that what James says in James chapter 4? Isn't that true? That the same idea is taught by James in chapter 4, verse 6? He gives more grace, therefore. It says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Verse 10, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. Yes, at the proper time. I want to be joyful. I want to be humble. That's what I zealously desire to do as a member of this local church. And tenth and finally, number ten, the zealous desire to love everyone earnestly from the heart. Love's the capstone of it all, right? First Corinthians 13, love. Now, now there are these three, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is what? Love. Love. It's the bow that ties everything together. It's the cherry on top. It's what God expects of us because we're the ones for whom Christ died because He loved. 1 Peter 1.22 Love one another fervently from the heart. We're not talking about a surface-oriented love. We're talking about a deep-seated, abiding, controlling love in the essence of the heart of a person who knows how much he's been forgiven and who turns and forgives others in the very same way. That's love. Now, I know, as I said this afternoon, this is clearly beyond us. This is clearly beyond us in our own strength, by virtue of our own power. It certainly is. But in the strength which God supplies, and by His rule and command, and by His infusion of power via the Holy Spirit, we can, we will, and my friends, we must do these things. And when we do, my beloved friends, we will have a church that has its light shining as a city set on the hill, glowing for the Lord to see. Let's bow down. Father, we desperately need your grace, your power. We've seen your purpose and your command. And we ask, Heavenly Father, to, that you would give us in our church, both in the individuals who are here and collectively as a local church in our city, such captivating, protruding love that this city, this one little aspect of a small city of believers would be so set on the hill for the Conejo Valley to see and that we as the light is shining would be glowing for that world to see the fruit of our love for one another, for the, for the zealous desire of all of these ten things that we've seen ever so quickly. May it be so, Father, for the good of our fellowship, for the sanctification of our ministry through both individuals and corporately as we worship together, as we live together, as we minister together, and for your glory, your honor, your praise. We ask these things in Jesus' name.